What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. Episode 13. Really excited about this. I know I say that every time. You met Mark Lefave back in episode 9, and now you have the privilege of meeting his wonderful wife, Vivian. Vivian's story is great for us, as we have not had anybody on yet that is the wife of somebody that struggled. Uh, she shares with us her story uh, going through childhood and, and growing up, her personal family stories of addiction and alcoholism. Um, and the kind of those realizations as it related to Mark and their marriage and their story together um, as they went into their later years, having kids, uh, growing together, recovering together. There's a lot of information packed into this, a lot of storytelling. Vivian is an incredible human being. Uh, she and Mark have really spent a, a lot of time and effort giving back to the community in Portsmouth, New Hampshire uh, as part of their own recovery, but also just to pay it forward. Um, their partnership's been incredible. I was so glad to be able to talk to Vivian and, and really hear her story and hear the other side. A lot of you listening are loved ones of those recovering, and we want to try and dedicate as much more time as we possibly can to shed light for you, to give you direction, to give you understanding on um, others that are in the same position as you. We recognize and we understand how hard it is to uh, really dig in on this disease and really understand it. Um, it's hard to know what to do. And so these are the styles of stories that we want to bring to you to give you more perspective, hopefully answer some questions, um, and really just empower you to keep going. Um, and as always, and we'll continue to say, please reach out if you have any questions, if you're not sure where to go from there, um, we're here for you. So Vivian, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate your perspective. We hope you'll join us again and enjoy everybody. joined uh, by another very special guest um, who happens to be the lovely wife of Mark Lefebvre um, from one of our previous episodes. Vivian, welcome to Faded Podcast. Thank you and thank you for asking. We are thrilled to have you. Excited to tell your story too, just from a different perspective. We've had so many different and great stories um, so far and mainly from the perspective of addicts and those that have struggled and, and also parents. But uh, you have a different perspective in being the wife of someone who has struggled and recovered. So really excited to get your perspective. Uh, and before we do that, I would love for you to just kind of tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you and um, where are you and uh, what brought you here with us today? Okay. Um, so. I'll just give you a quick, um, just kind of a quick snapshot of my background. So I grew up uh, right outside of Boston. My family consists of an older sister um, and then younger brother and sister who happen to also be twins. Uh -huh. um, so I was sort of sandwiched in between, you know, two, <laughs> two interesting people, three interesting people. My, Mark and I grew up far away from each other, but we met at work in Boston and then we moved to New Hampshire about a year after we got married. And we now live in Hampton Falls, New Hampshire on the seacoast, which we love and been here for 35 years. Yeah, I love it. They, uh, he, told, he told a great story of how you met and we were able to share um, the photo booth, the infamous photo booth photo um, on our <laughs> channels, which I just absolutely adored. So it was great hearing that story and now uh, making that connection here as well. 
<laughs> yes, that was a very fun story, and we love telling it. I love it. Great. So um, let's get into it. So set up, you know, how, how did, if you can remind the audience, um, and for those maybe that haven't listened yet, um, how did you and Mark meet just uh, for some background? Yeah, so, um, you know, it's interesting. We were both kind of in our mid-20s. We had both been out in the world working for a while, and, and we had, you know, sort of similar histories up to the point that we met. We were both um, in pretty serious relationships with our high school sweethearts, and then mm -hmm. when that ended, we did a bunch of sort of serial dating, and um, I think by the time the two of us met each other, we were both pretty ready to settle down. You know, the first time we met, we just kind of saw each other in passing in the in the cafeteria at work and caught each other's eye. And next thing you know, we were having lunch together and we had a, a, a date after that. And uh, four months after we met, he proposed and eight months later, we were married. Wow. I love it. <laughs> so it happened many, pretty quick. And how many years now later? Uh, 36. 36 Amazing. years of marriage. Yep. Congratulations. So, awesome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So talk a little bit about, so growing up for you um, in your family, talk about your perspective, um, any thoughts that you had, if anything, on um, drugs, alcohol, addiction, anything that you can remember um, from your past um, before meeting Mark, before, you know, any of, any of this happened, um, what was your perspective on the whole deal? <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting. I, um, so, you know, as I said, I grew up outside of Boston and, you know, in the city, there was a lot of, um, drug and alcohol activity in the, you know, in the seventies when I was in high school and, um, I was really not into any of it. I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to do drugs. I just, I was not a party girl at all. I was definitely more serious, I guess, and um, just really, I just didn't have any interest in it. I didn't, I didn't really feel the need. And I don't think I took my first drink until I was a senior in high school. And, I, you know, and I, of course, I just like a lot of kids, like got sick to my stomach and never and didn't go back to it again for a really long time. So <laughs> I was not really of, you know, of that, um, that scene at all growing up. And part of that, I think was, you know, my family really were not big drinkers and they're still really not. Um, we, you know, we're an Italian family. So a lot of our, our family culture is around food and meals and all of that. And on Sundays, there was always wine available if anybody yeah. wanted it, but, and it was offered to me at, by my grandmother at a pretty young age. And I, I didn't like the taste of it. And I just wasn't into it. Yeah. So I did other than, you know, friends that I was growing up with who who you know would would dabble in drinking and and smoking some weed i really didn't have a lot of um a lot of exposure to um anybody who was an addict or anything like that so probably not until the first year that mark and i were married when my mom told me that my dad had been having some struggles with alcohol oh wow and i really i was so shocked i didn't know that he i mean i knew that i would see him take a drink every now and again but i really didn't think anything of it i never really saw him like drunk but she said that he had been drinking a lot and she was really concerned about him and so he was going to go to rehab hmm. and um i was i just didn't even know what to make of it so he went to rehab for whatever it was at the time 28 days and came out and he stayed sober for the rest of his life which was another 7 wow. years Wow. beyond that um so i really admired that about him and um and during that time probably from the late 70s into you know, probably for the next 10 years 
I came to find out that my older sister um, was drinking pretty excessively and sneaking it. Hmm. So not really letting anybody see her. You know, when we got together with family, she didn't really drink a lot. Um, But there were times when I would talk to her on the phone and she was making no sense at all. And my mom would see her and she'd say, I think she smells like wine. I'm not really sure what's going on there. And by the time we all started to sort of put the pieces together, she was pretty far down in the hole of uh, being an alcoholic. Wow. And um and by this time Mark and I had been married for some time and um and we really nobody really knew how to deal with it. We didn't know what to what to do about it. And you know, my dad kind of coming out of his rehab and really living in that world, he said, Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go and rescue her mm. and um he invited her to go to a meeting with him and she absolutely refused. She says, I have no reason to be there and I'm just not interested. So, you know, we all sort of tap danced around her drinking for quite a long time until there was no more denying it. And she did end up in, in the hospital for quite a long time. Her uh, liver was pretty much destroyed. And um, long story short, she ended up dying at the age of 38 from, um, from liver disease. And, you know, we, again, we were all just, we kind of knew what was going on, but we were just pretty shocked that um, alcoholism had struck our family in this way. And it happened so late. That was the thing that was strange. Like most of the people who I met through my own recovery journey since Mark got into recovery um, told stories of growing up with alcoholic parents who were unreliable and living in this chaotic home and never knowing where your meals were coming from. All of these like pretty sad, terrible stories. And I just didn't have that. You know, my family was pretty stable. And as I said, alcohol really was not a major factor. And my sister got married pretty young. She was 19. And, um, and I was 11. She was eight years older than me. Yeah. So I, again, I think that she probably didn't start really drinking heavily until she was, you know, probably in her mid twenties ish. And, yeah. um, and it just got progressively worse from there. So, um, yeah. And it, like I said, to lose her at 38 was shocking, especially mm-hmm. from alcohol. When you hear stories about people who drink heavily into their eighties and they're still walking around, you know, you just yeah. wonder how that happened. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, in looking back in hindsight and then in, in stories that you heard later on, was it truly that they, I mean, both of them started that late or were they hiding it longer than what you uh, knew? It's probably a combination. I, I, I think that they probably were hiding it, to be honest. I think yeah. my sister, and I also, you know, we don't know for sure. And I hate to speculate in a you know, public yeah. forum like this, but it's yeah. very possible that my sister was doing other drugs or other substances that um, sort of expedited her um, her death. And, um, you know, my dad, I think may have been hiding it. Um, but I certainly never saw it in, in any big way until after I was married. Absolutely. And it's such a lonely disease. That's what we're learning. And you hate to think of the fact that somebody could have been hiding it. It it could be the case might not be, but, um, it's just, just crazy that, that you, you know, experienced that, especially later on in, in the later years. And so, Talk a little bit about your experience with Mark. Um, you know, you've you've got this great love that that took off really quickly. Tell us a little bit about the story of you know how um, his addiction and dependency kind of developed um, as you guys got to know each other better and you know are married and and kind of moved forward in life. So the first 
year, of course, you know, we were still really getting to know each other. We were still on our on a very extended honeymoon. Um, again, we had only known each other a year when we got married. And, yeah. you know, we like to go out to dinner and we like to go to clubs and go dancing. And we like to, you know, a lot of fun things. And, and by the time I met him, I was much more comfortable with having a few drinks. Again, not usually getting drunk, but occasionally over drinking and yep. then feeling horrible for the next couple of days. So I was never really up to the level of consumption that he was, but I didn't mind drinking a bottle of wine over dinner with him. Yep. Um, and then after we, I think we were married, maybe in our, it was maybe our second year of marriage, we were living in Portsmouth. We had moved to New Hampshire at that point. And we had gone to a friend, a friend of his wedding and he drank very excessively and he just, he behaved like an ass truthfully. And I was really angry with him and I was really upset. And, and by this time, my dad was already in AA and after the wedding was finished and we were home and we had had, you know, our, our arguments about it. I said, I think you have a problem. I think you need to talk to my dad. Hmm. And my dad came up and sat with him and, he talked to me afterwards and he said, yeah, I think he, he meets the criteria of somebody who's got a, a bit of a problem with drinking. So Mark said, okay, well, I'm going to quit and that's going to be it. So he went to a couple of the meetings and at the time you were allowed to smoke in the meetings, which a lot of people, you know, use um, tobacco as a substitute. So the smoke in the room was just, you know, awful. He He couldn't tolerate the smoke in the room. <laughs> So he came home after the first week or two. He said, I'm not going to go to any more of those meetings. I can't tolerate the smoke, but I'm not going to drink. So yeah. I said, all right, well, you do what you need to do. That's fine with me. And and he didn't drink for a whole year. And um, and I was okay with that. I didn't drink a lot anyway. And so it was it was fine. Mm-hmm. But there were times when we would go out with friends and they and they would want to go and have drinks. And Mark would say, oh, I'm, I'm going to drink Diet Coke or I'm just going to drink seltzer. And, yeah. and it made me feel a little uncomfortable that he wasn't even able to have one. It was a it made me feel a little like I had to make excuses mm-hmm. for him. But, um, you know, at that point, I hadn't really separated myself from him. And um, and about a year after he had quit, he said to me, you know, I really think that incident at the wedding was more of like an immaturity thing. And I really think that I can have a drink or two yeah. now and again. And I said, well, if you think you can, then then go ahead. And um, And he, you know, he picked up again and he said, you know, we'll have a drink, a glass of wine with dinner or something. And um, and that's how it started. And then, of course, he escalated again. And over time, you know, the same cycle happened where he drank too much in public and made a fool of himself. And it went it went on and on. And then he quit for a while and then go back. And, and that went on for I don't know how many years, a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, I think that we were. We were young enough that it, it really it wasn't something I was going to dwell on. It really wasn't. But and then after my sister passed away, um, I became a lot more sensitive about drinking, and my family became more sensitive about it. And even now, we joke about how you know we get together as a family and we go through more you know water and diet coke than any amount of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Um, always. So I think Mark became more sensitive again about my feelings towards drinking, and so he he didn't drink a lot in front of me. He may have had some in secret. I don't really know. Yep. But I'd say probably at about 2000, the year 2000, we had um, our kids at the time and we had just moved back from Singapore and we had another kind of big incident where he drank too much and we had a knockdown drag out and he said, okay, I'm going to quit. And that's it. 
So again, I said, do what you want. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you know, I'm not going to tolerate this behavior anymore. Right. And, um, and that was the, that was probably the longest stretch after that, that he didn't drink was um, about eight years before he picked up again, when things started to get really, really bad. It's a long time. (laughs) It was a long time. That is a long time. (laughs) And quick question for you. I mean, as you're going through this in the earlier years and maybe maybe the first few incidents, I mean, when you think back on what you learned or maybe didn't learn um, through your dad and your sister's experiences, had you learned about recovery? Did you have the education that you needed to understand what was going on? Or was this just kind of, I know you mentioned, you know, it's, you're young, right? So it's not, you can, you can potentially kind of move it to the side and just say, okay, we're just going to move forward and we're not going to deal with this. Did you feel like you had the tools and education to understand what actual addiction and alcoholism was? Definitely not at all. Not at all. I, my, when my dad uh, went into rehab, they had kind of a family day where they brought us up and talked to us. And I don't think I remember a single thing I heard um, when I was there that day. And I did nothing to follow up afterwards. Um, I really left that more to my mom. She went to Al-Anon and saw a therapist and did her own thing because I wasn't living with my dad anymore. And, and my dad and I were very, very close. Yeah. And he was always really open and honest with me once he got into recovery. But I never really thought about going to Al-Anon or getting any support for myself or even educating myself. And and the same with my sister. I really, I was so angry with her yeah. that I felt like she made a choice to put herself in that situation. And I was really angry that she left us. And yeah. um. And it's, and there was a lot of shame for me. I, when people found out that my sister had died, they'd say, Oh my God, what happened? And I would lie. I'd say, Well, she had a liver disease. Mm. Like I couldn't bring myself to say that she had done this with alcohol. It was just, I was too ashamed. Yeah. So I didn't have any tools. I didn't have any understanding of anything I was dealing with at, with them. And really up until the point at which Mark went to rehab, which wasn't until 2012. Yeah. So at that point, we were together 28 years. And that was when I started to say, okay, I need to understand what's happening here. Yeah. And did, had you held resentments, you know, for, for your family throughout all of those years too? I definitely had a lot of resentment towards my sister. And unfortunately I feel like I, I did take it out on the rest of my family just because I had nowhere else to put it, frankly. Um, you know, I wasn't seeing a therapist. I wasn't getting any help for myself, but I just had all of this anger and resentment about, about her, about her leaving. And, you know, as I said, she was eight years older than me. So she was almost like another mother to me. You know, she was always with me when I was growing up. She read to me and we did a lot of things together and I absolutely admired her and adored her. And the, and the loss was just, was, I couldn't even put into words what that loss was like and, and losing her in the way that I did having to bear that shame of it was just all too much. Yeah. It's just, it's unbelievable though, you know, to go that long. And I can't imagine what you were going through. I mean, we talk a lot about, and I know Mark has said the same. It's, we, we, we tend to focus a lot on the, the addict or alcoholic and what they're struggling with. Right. And your story is a perfect example that this really does affect everybody involved, you know? And, and whether that's outwardly seen or known, even just, you know, what you went through, not having the resources and having to deal with that and carry that throughout. Um, and, and whether you really realize that, you know, then or, or later on, it's just, it, it affected you too. And then it affected your family in turn, right? So 
um, that's, that's one of the things we're trying to bring to light here is it's truly a family disease. It truly affects everyone, not just the one that is the struggling one, you know? Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I was just saying this to somebody this past weekend about when Mark first came back from treatment, we used to go to these meetings where the AA meeting was in like a downstairs hall and the Al-Anon meeting was in the upstairs rooms um, at the same time. So we would go to the meeting at the same time. He'd go to his and I'd go to mine. And I used to do the math in my head and I would think to myself, okay, I know that this is a family disease. So I look at the AA meeting and I see there's 50 people in the room. And I think to myself, for each of those 50 people, there's at least three other people that are being impacted by their addiction. Why are there only eight people in the Alamon meeting? Yes. Like, where is everybody? Why aren't people reaching out for help? And I just, I just think that you just don't know. You don't know that that help is available and you don't know how to ask for that help. And, and there's so much shame about going to that meeting in the first place. The first meeting I went to was just terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and until I got in there and got to meet people and hear their stories and understand what I was, what I was among and who I was among, I, I was really uncomfortable going, but it, it still boggles my mind that family members don't get the help that they need. And that's one of the reasons I'm glad you're doing what you're doing with this podcast, because family members really do need help, a lot of help. Absolutely. And I agree with you on the meetings. It's, um, it's daunting. It's scary. It's, it's, you're, you're not familiar with it. You don't know what to expect out of it. And, and you're right. There's no kind of resource to say, Hey, this isn't so bad. Just come join. Right. It's not this jolly, Hey, like helpful, supportive thing. Like you would normally get, um, in, in the form of, you know, a loved one throwing their arm over your shoulder or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's this awkward secrecy, uncertainty, whatever you want to call it. That is just not very fun. But then once you kind of are invested in this world and, you know, you and I meet each other, or there's, there's this kind of like group of this, this family that kind of seems to be in the clouds for a bit, right? Then once you get up there, it's like, oh, there they are. You know, this is, this is actually this great family of people that have shared the same experiences. And um, it's just so uh, dissimilar to other experiences that we go through as human beings, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I've met some incredible people through this program who, you know, I've stayed in touch with for eight years and um, we support each other in good times and bad. And, and we understand each other's experience, which is the most important thing, just to feel like you have somebody who gets it. You know, you can tell your story and you can cry and you can put it all out there and be honest. And people are going to go, yep, I, I know exactly how you're feeling. And, and it's very validating and it's very supportive. And um, I, I just, I have, found that program to be extraordinarily helpful for me. Absolutely. And that, that's one of the things we're trying to bring to life is, is don't be afraid to reach out. And, and we keep kind of screaming that every week on, on the podcast. It's please reach out, right? Don't, don't you know, whether you're nervous to or unsure or um, not, un, not sure what to expect, um, whatever the situation is that you'll find what you need in reaching out. And, and also that those of us that have had experiences with this phenomenon and this disease is we're never going to be bothered by the fact that someone's reaching out, um, asking for help, seeking advice, whatever it might be. Um, I think that's also kind of the, the un- uncomfortable situation is that you wonder 
you know, are they going to judge? Is my story too big? Is my story too small? Um, whatever it might be, uh, we, we don't discriminate. Just like the disease doesn't, we do not either. Um, and we've heard it all and we'll accept it all. Um, and, and it's all about, you know, us as those who have gone through it, passing on the word from here and being there for everyone else, just like it is um, in 12 steps for someone who is addicted. Um, it's, it's also on us and something we enjoy doing to spread the word and to help others. So. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I, you know, I have gotten phone calls from friends who say, Hey, I know that you've been active in Al-Anon and I have another friend whose husband is drinking a lot and she doesn't know what to do. Are you willing to talk to her? Yes. And I'm always open to that. Absolutely. You know, give her my number. I'm happy to have a conversation, meet her for coffee, whatever she wants, because that's, that's how the program works, right? There's your 12th step is that you're going to be giving back to others who need support. And, and by doing so, you know, sort of reminds you of your own recovery and your own program and you get the reward back from that. So it is a program that definitely, you know, keeps on giving. So tell us, um, tell us what moment for you solidified the fact that Mark actually had a problem. I mean, I, I know you probably knew that, but when did it click for you that this was larger and, you know, any, any sort of key moments for you along the journey, um, that were, you know, changing for you? So I have to say that, um, you know, once he got through that eight year stretch of not drinking and he was doing well and things were great and we were, we were fine, you know, our kids were growing up and we were busy with their activities and our jobs and all of that stuff, you know, everything was fine. And then after, after eight years, he just decided on his own to pick up again, but he decided to do it on the snake. So I didn't know. And he was a pretty skilled hider. <laughs> Let me just say, he, he just had it down. You know, he knew exactly how to drink enough so that I wouldn't know or to, you know, drink when I wasn't in town or whatever, whatever his techniques were. I really didn't know. I didn't know for a really long time that he was drinking again. But I started seeing some signs of core health in him. And, um, and, you know, initially it was, you know, he couldn't get up in the morning and he was not, you know, he had headaches, he had stomach problems. There was a lot of little things. And then finally after, and I realized now it was probably after about a year that he had been drinking excessively again, he developed pancreatitis. But I didn't know that that's what it was. I just knew that he was deathly sick and I really thought he was going to die. Um, he was in extreme pain. He was on the couch, like writhing in pain. He lost a lot of weight really quickly. And he was describing his symptoms to me. And I, I didn't know what was going on, but I really thought he was going to die. I thought he was, he was, you know, at the end of his life. That's how, how scary it was. And so he was going to the doctor and getting all kinds of tests. And I went to one doctor's appointment with him and the doctor said, well, I think he might have pancreatitis. He said, how much alcohol do you drink? And and I was sitting right next to him and he said to the doctor, I haven't had a drink in almost 10 years. And I didn't think anything of it because I really believed that that was true. Yeah. So um, eventually, I don't know what he did, whether he cut back or whatever, but he did seem to kind of recover from the pancreatitis. And then that, and that would have been sort of over the summer. And then that New Year's Eve, we had gone out with my family and a bunch of people and to a, to a club. And we were dancing and I thought he was drinking Diet Coke and I picked up his drink and took a sip of it and, and there was alcohol in it. Hmm. 
And I said, oh, I said, is this your drink? And he said, he said, um, no, it's not my drink. I said, but I saw you drinking out of this. It's got alcohol in it. And he said, no, 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 that's not my drink. That's someone else's drink. Yeah. And I just knew, like, it was so stupid and so childish. And so yeah. the next day I challenged him on it. And I was like, what's going on here? And he said, well, you know, I have been drinking a little bit just when I, when I travel, you know, sometimes I'll go out with some people in the office and I'll have a, a glass of wine with dinner. So I'm not really drinking much. Yeah. So I didn't really think anything of it, but I still had it in the back of my mind that he was drinking more than he was admitting. And then a couple of months later, you know, and he had told me that day, he said, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm going to quit again. And I said, look, you do what you want to do. I, again, I'm not going to tell you to, to drink or not drink because it can't be my decision. It has to be for you. If you don't want to quit, then you're not going to quit. Um, he said, well, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. And I said, I said, you just do what you want. And then after we would go out to dinner, he would have a glass of wine with dinner and I didn't challenge him on it. And then finally in the spring, he said to me, well, I think, um, I think you were right. He said, I think that the drinking is probably what caused me to be so sick last year. And, um, I'm not going to drink anymore. And by this time I was just, I was just done. You know, I was so tired of the back and forth and, and I had been lied to about it, which, which was most infuriating part of it. And at that point in my mind, I thought, I think this marriage is over. Mm. I think I'm done here. I think I'm ready to, to leave. I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't deal with any more stories and lies yep. and I'm done. But it was, it was my son's senior year of high school. It was the spring of his senior year. And so I thought, I'm just going to wait for him to graduate, get him settled in college, and then we're going to talk divorce. Yeah. And um, and I had that in the back of my mind. And then over that summer, I started seeing behaviors in Mark where he was really forgetful and confused. And I thought to myself, he's getting Alzheimer's. Uh. Like I thought that there was some like cognitive decline that he was experiencing. And I started to get really scared. And I thought, all right, maybe maybe he needs to see a doctor again. And every time I would challenge him on it, he would say, no, 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 I'm just fine. I'm, I'm just stressed from work. And he always had a story and he always had an excuse. Yeah. And he kept insisting that he wasn't drinking. And then by August of that summer, I, I, um, I had some suspicions that he was drinking again. And he had left his computer open. And I saw an email that he had sent to some friends about drinking, getting together when he was going out of town and drinking in bars and all that. So I knew. Yeah. I knew what he was doing. And by that time, I had proof, and I challenged him on it. And then he admitted to everything. He admitted to the drugs. He admitted to how long it had been going on. Yeah. And he was he was really collapsing at that point. And that was the point at which he said, "I'm going to go to rehab." And I, again, I really felt like, boy, I have been so betrayed. Yeah. And so deceived for so long. I don't even care if you go to rehab. I really don't want to be in this marriage anymore. Yeah. yeah. And, and the truth of it is that, you know, the, the difference between a sibling or parent addict relationship is that with a spouse, you really do have permission to leave. Right. You know, right. and I had a ton of support from everybody in my family and all of my friends who were like, you know what, enough is enough. You should leave them. You deserve better. Yeah. And nobody told me to stick with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it would have been really easy to, to check out at that point. And I, and I considered it for a really long time because it's hard, you know, and it was exhausting and it took a lot out of me. And, you know, while he was in rehab, I mean, I was beyond devastated. I stopped eating. I couldn't work out. I couldn't function at work. I, I couldn't concentrate. I, 
I just, I couldn't think about anything else except to try to put all the pieces together in my mind of how the hell did we get here, you know? And, um, and it wasn't until after I went out to see him in, at the rehab um, in California where I saw glimpses of the man I married still there. And, you know? and did you, I assume that you still didn't, un, I mean, I, you may have known that it was, you know, a larger thing, a disease and all that. Did, did you know that at that point or had you, I, I'm, I'm curious, I guess, what you thought at this point about addiction and alcoholism? Um, I had certainly been told what it was and, you know, I had been starting to not, not in a direct way, but you know, the, the, I guess the PR messaging around addiction was starting to become a lot more public and recognizing that it's a disease and seeing it for what it is and that sort of thing. But I really didn't relate to it until after Mark was in rehab. And when I went out for the family weekend, they, the first day was just for the families and they showed us a, a film that talked about the brain and how addiction um, impacts the brain and how, how people become addicted and what, you know, the, the science of it. And I really related to that. I really got that. I was like, okay, I get now. This was not something he was doing to punish me or to hurt me. Um, that certainly was an outcome, but that was not his intention. I get that now. Yep. And so that education started to open the door for me to be able to understand what he was dealing with in a, a way that I hadn't been up until that point. Wow. And did that make you immediately think back in hindsight on your, on your father and your sister? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. You know, you start putting all the pieces together in that context, you know, and, and I think everyone in my family still has a lot of regret about my sister in terms of, boy, if we had just said something sooner, if we had forced her to get help sooner, if we had only, and, and I think you can't really spend too much time thinking that way because there are some people for whom recovery just isn't going to happen. Yeah. And we, we know that, right. But, um, but I, it did give me a different perspective on what she was dealing with and, and how she was feeling. And it, it made me feel differently about, about her and about uh, my experience of losing her. Yeah. And I also think, you know, the reality is you didn't have the tools or the education at that point either, you know, when she was struggling. So it's really hard. And I think that's, that's the hardest part for everyone to go through, um, especially if you haven't been through it before and you start to go through it, you just, you don't know what you don't know. And it's so hard to grasp this disease. Even when you start to understand it, it's hard to grasp. Even today, I sometimes when I'm hearing stories, I like, or I'm, I'm understanding, you know, a situation with someone, I, I have to check myself again and, and I know better, but it's just so unnatural. Um, and so you, you, you didn't have the tools. So I understand that, but you're right. It's not worth, you know, spending the time saying, what if it's, it's sharing your story now is the, is the purpose, um, you know, at this point in your life. Right. Absolutely. And, and as I said, you know, it's, it's a, it's a family activity that we indulge in every now and again, where we think back and say, Oh, you know, if only, if only, yeah. because we yeah. miss her, Yeah. you know, and we, and, and, and I think the hard part too, and, and I think this is one thing that a lot of people struggle with when they're in the midst of someone else's addiction, <clears throat> is that recognizing addiction as a disease somehow feels invalidating to the experience of the family members. 
You know, it's like, it doesn't make, and I think what people need to understand is it doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make what they're doing okay. If they're right. hurting you, like that's, that's never okay. Yeah. But understanding the pathology and understanding the history of that person that took them to that place, that dark place where they felt that they had nowhere else to turn does give you some compassion. And I think from there, you can start to learn to forgive. Completely agree. And I'm really glad you said that because we really haven't talked about that at this point. We haven't really said that so bluntly just to say like, just because it is a disease. I mean, we're talking a lot about, hey, that's a realization. And that's something that everybody kind of needs to start to understand, but it does not excuse um, what went on and, and, and a huge part of the recovery process. Um, once you get into it and kind of work the steps is, is for that person to go back and understand um, where they've hurt people and acknowledge that and to, to relieve, relieve themselves of that, you know? And so um, I'm really glad that you brought that up because we really have not talked about that at this point. Yeah. Making amends um, on, on his part was a pretty big part of his, of his recovery. And, um, and it took a long time. And I think that was the other thing that I was, I was also a little surprised to learn is that when he went to treatment for 28 days, I knew something about 12 steps. And I think in my mind, I thought he's going to come back after 28 days and his 12 steps are going to be done. <laughs> and uh, it's all good. You know, he's going to be all good. And yeah. he's going to come back and apologize for everything. And and I really didn't know how long a process it was and, and, and the fact that it really is a lifelong journey. I, I don't think I comprehended any of that at that time. So, you know, Mark spent 28 days in treat, inpatient treatment and then he stayed in California for another month um, in sober living where he participated in a, an intensive outpatient program and then came home and spent another month in another intensive outpatient program here. So. You know, and as soon as he came home, he was doing two meetings a day. He found a sponsor the first day. Like he dove in with both feet on, on this program and just embraced it. And, um, and it was important for me to see that, to see that he was taking it seriously and that it, it was important to him to, to do it right and to do it well and to be committed. And, and I, I, I guess I needed to see him doing that, but at the same time, Still didn't make it okay for how he treated me. Yeah, and I needed to have him. I needed to have him sit in front of me and say, "I did all of these things, and it was really wrong, and I shouldn't have done that, and I'm so sorry for that." And you know, in so many words, to own it and and tell the truth. And being honest for the first time in a long time again opened the door for forgiveness. It opened the door for me to let go of that anger and resentment and start to, you know, start to feel, start to see him as the, as the man I married. And, yeah. and I, I also had to trust myself in knowing that I wouldn't have married him in the first place because there wasn't a lot of good stuff there. You know, I, even though we, we didn't know each other really well, but over the years we did get to know each other really well. And I, I knew who he was. I knew his values. I knew who he was as a person. And, um, and I, I just didn't believe that all of the bad things that had happened were his true self. Right. right. And, and I think recovery allowed me to see his true self again. And that, you know, that again, opened the door for me um, to start walking through and saying, okay, maybe we can save this. Maybe Absolutely. we can make it work. Yes. No, I love that. And when did you finally become resolved? Um, I guess for lack of a better term in the fact that he he was recovered. He is recovered. Um, and I know that it's, it's a constant journey, but, um, when did you finally kind of 
feel that that trust and that res resolve um, back for you, or have you? Uh, <laughs> good question. <laughs> um, it's really hard to say. It's it's hard to pinpoint like a moment in time. I think it's um, you know it was a matter of seeing consistent behavior from him over a long period of time, and consistent behavior meaning being honest, you know, working his program, keeping his word, um, helping other people, really immersing himself in recovery in a very meaningful way. And, and part of that um, we did together when we started the idea for Safe Harbor Recovery Center. And, um, and that was probably about six months after he came back from treatment. We, we saw this movie called The Anonymous People, and they talked about recovery centers that they were opening in Connecticut and some areas in Mid-Atlantic. And we thought, oh, my God, we, that would be so cool to do in New Hampshire. And Mark started putting together a business plan for it. And I said, oh, it would be great to have a place for families to get help. And, you know, we could do all these really cool things. And, and it gave us something to focus on together that was recovery specific, but also was um, supporting each of us in our own recovery journey. Yeah. And and I think that process started to make me see him again in a very different light and make me have a little bit more hope that his recovery was legit this time. Yeah. And talk a little bit about, you know, for for those that are listening and again a, a huge part of the the purpose of having you on is to give the perspective um from the loved one. And so talk about your own recovery um and you know from from that point and now that kind of you're understanding better and you're really moving forward, um, what has your own recovery been like and um, kind of what do you do on a daily basis or what has helped you to move forward and, and focus on you and, and all of that? What's, uh, what's helped you? Yeah. And, you know, I would say that my own recovery has been a very, very different path from his. Um, you know, he came back from treatment being in this, you know, they call it the pink cloud, right? So he's all about recovery and everything's great and fantastic. And I was still pretty damaged when he came home. So um, my recovery took a lot longer to get traction. Um, it started off with me going to a lot of meetings for Al-Anon and a lot of therapy with, with my therapist, who fortunately I had been seeing for a long time. And so she sort of knew my history with with Mark and his history and so on. So she was really supportive and very, very helpful. Um, so those two things combined got me through the really dark phase of not knowing what my life was going to be and whether I was going to be able to stay married and, and all of that. And I would say that not only my therapist, but a lot of the people I met through Al-Anon really helped to guide me um, so that I was not only making a decision for, you know, the impact of Mark and, my, and our kids, but putting myself first. And what I learned is that, you know, a lot of people who live with addiction, even if you don't know it, you become very codependent with that person and you put their needs above your own so much so that you don't even realize that that's what you do. And it, it was a very, very eye-opening experience for me to see how I had been doing that for a really, really long time. And to be able to switch, switch that around and say, you know what, here's what I need. This is, this is what I need in my life. And some of that involved putting some boundaries in place with Mark. And, and that looked like no more drugs or alcohol, period. If you, if you have a relapse or if you have a slip, you're going to tell me within 24 hours because as soon as you start lying to me again, we're, we're done. We're not going to make it. So those are the kinds of things that were 
not necessarily rules for him, but stating what I needed and what, what I needed from him to be able to support my recovery. And I think a lot of people don't want to ask for that. You know, they don't want to ask for what they need, but, but boundaries are a good way to do that. You know, a way to set, set some limits on the, the things people can ask from you because yeah. we're so giving and we, it just, you don't even think about it. You just do it. Right. Absolutely. And, and so I need, I needed him to, to take care of himself. So that I didn't feel like I had to keep taking care of him. And that was a really big step for both of us. Um, so that, you know, that kind of self-care, I think, was really important. And, you know, as I said, 12-step work, as I started to get stronger on my own, to be able to start supporting other newcomers coming into the program, um, working on Safe Harbor was very, very healing for me because I felt like I was giving something back, not only to the recovery community for people who are addicts, but for the families. And I wanted families to know that they had a place that they could go. Um, so that was, that was a pretty big deal for me. And, you know, just again, taking care of myself, not revolving my life around everything that he was doing. But if I wanted to go out with my girlfriends for dinner or drinks or whatever I was going to do, I was going to do it. Absolutely. And I didn't need permission anymore. And I didn't need to make sure that it was okay. And that he was going to be around. It's like, I'm going out. I need some time to myself. Um, I also uh, learned how to meditate during that period, which wow. was something I had never done. So cool, and right? <laughs> it was really weird. I didn't know that I, I didn't know that I needed it. And, um, it was just one of those like weird things where my sister had, had signed up for a class at, uh, like, like a high school adult education program. And she said, Oh, I went to this great class last week. It's how to meditate. Yeah. And, you know, I thought it was going to be so popular. There were only four of us in the class. She said, you should come with us. And I said, I think I will. And I went and it was fantastic. So meditation really helped. Again, when I needed to calm myself down, I would use that for um, for just taking care of myself. So I had a lot of tools that uh, over time and um, all of those tools have served me well since uh, eight years ago. Yeah, that's really great. And uh, so talk a little bit about just, I mean, you do have two kids, correct? Yes. So you've gone through, um, a lot in your own life. Um, you've understood and kind of journeyed through your own recovery, Mark's recovery, um, all the stories that you've just told. Talk a little bit about being a mom, a parent, um, and, and having kids to guide. I know they're older now, but um, just having kids to guide and what you've brought to um, to them uh, through going through this. Well, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, one of the things that I have worried about through this process, more so early on than now, is that my family and my, you know, specifically my kids, but also my extended family would say, well, you're just an idiot for staying in this marriage after you've been treated so poorly. Yeah. And I think you're a doormat and I think that you're stupid. And I, I think that you shouldn't keep giving him more chances and that they would be judging me for that. And it really worried me that a lot of people felt that way about me. Yeah. Um, and I spoke with both of my kids about that. And I, and I told them, I said, I, I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm letting dad take advantage of me again. I want you to know that I'm, I am taking care of myself. And, you know, I want you to know that I'm making this decision with both eyes open and, you know, I'm committed to our marriage and our life together. And they both said, wow, we never thought that, you know, we always thought that you were 
like really strong and really brave. And we admire the fact that you're, you're willing to keep working at this and we have a lot of respect for you. And I was so shocked to hear them say that, but that was important to me to hear that because I, I did worry that they were, they were judging me. And, um, and after a while I got to the point where I didn't really care if anybody else judged me, but I do, I did worry about my kids and, um, and, you know, conversations with them about alcohol and drugs over their, you know, formative years were just like every other parent, you know, you don't want to be drinking. And we did catch my son. I think he, maybe he was a junior in high school making plans to go out drinking with his friends. And we had a long conversation and, you know, we took his car keys away and all of that stuff to try to um, teach him a lesson. And, um, and in the end, I think he did what most kids do. You know, they drink a bit in high school, they drink quite a bit in college. And then once college is done and they start working, they're sort of over it. And um, I think that's where he is now. I think he, you know, he'll drink occasionally, but I, I don't think he, um, either of our kids has um, any issues with alcohol or drugs. And I'm really relieved about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, throughout Chris's journey, that was my same experience was I just, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I wasn't really into much at all. And um, certainly kind of after going through what he went through, I was kind of questioning, you know, back on, you know, any time I had <laughs> overindulged, um, I had a surgery at one point that I was given, um, a very strong medication for, uh, and, and I was nervous about it. I was nervous about trying it after he went through it, but I always chalked up his stories to just being a teenager. And I think that's where you, it's, it's a bit of a struggle is just what, what, how do you measure it? Right. And it, and it, that's not an easy question to answer, but um, when you've got teenagers kind of ex exploring and experimenting, um, at what point, you know, should you be concerned versus it just being chalked up to, um, having those experiences that a lot of you will go through, um, without any issue, you know? So, um, right. glad, it's really hard to know. That. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to know when they're teenagers, is what, you know, whether they're going to stay on that path or not. And I know, you know, my son in particular had several friends who were, you know, using drugs in a, a pretty significant way and had some problems. In fact, I think one of his former high school um, classmates overdosed mm -hmm. and um, you know, it was pretty, it's pretty scary. I mean, my son's 26 years old, so, you know, it's, it's happening. And um, I think that the fact that their dad was in recovery, I think gave them a little different perspective. Um, I think at the time that Mark went into treatment, Joey, my son was a senior in high school. And my daughter was a sophomore. Yeah. So, they were pretty much at that crucial point. And, you know, here was my son going off to college. I moved him into his dorm while Mark was still in California. So, you know, he knew the reality of, of his family life was, you know, you better be a little bit careful with the alcohol and anything else that you might decide to put into your body because look at where dad is. It could happen to you. And I think he always had that in mind. And, and my daughter really never was, I think she's probably more like me, was never really um into any of that she never liked the taste of alcohol she you yeah. know never was just never was a partier and and i think that's that's still the case with her yeah for sure so looking back on your journey what what do you what do you think are your kind of key lessons for yourself and your journey that you can share with the people listening just as far as um what you've been through key lessons um overall so I think, you know, quite a lot of what I what I consider to be my key lessons come straight out of out of 12 steps and Al-Anon. And, um, you know, the first one, which I 
I absolutely hated this concept, but I had to eventually come to embrace it is one day at a time. Yeah. And um, I did not want to wait one day at a time. I wanted everything to be fixed quickly. I wanted my life back. I wanted things to be normal and peaceful for me again. And I wanted it now. And I had to keep reminding myself of, you know, it's one day at a time. Let's just, let's just take today and make today be okay. And then we'll think about tomorrow. And, um, and that one, I still apply that to just about every aspect of my life. And that's, I think that's the other thing I, I love about, um, Alan on the 12 steps is that there's application well beyond the addictive, um, personalities in my family and in, in my history. Um, it's really a life skill. So the one day at a time thing was huge. Um, detaching. I think detachment to me was the essence of Al-Anon. And that was really about separating myself from, from Mark and letting him own his own recovery, letting him own his own life and his own path and his own journey and owning mine Hmm. and, um, recognizing myself as a, as a complete individual. And that was, um, quite a long process, but that detachment really allowed me to, to do that. Detaching from him allowed me to recognize my, my own needs and my own goals and my own desires for myself. And it allowed me to be in recovery to the point where, you know, if something went wrong in our marriage again, I know that I would be okay. Yeah. And that I, I needed to know that I needed, that was something I went into the program meeting is that if for some reason my marriage doesn't work out, I need to know that I'm going to survive it and that I'm going to, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to have the tools to live my life as an individual. And I think today I can say that I, I have that. Right. I didn't feel that way in the beginning. I thought that if anything mm-hmm. happened and, you know, he was gone, I would be done. I would just, I wouldn't know where to turn. And I, I don't think that that's true anymore. And, and that doesn't mean that I don't love him or I don't care about him, but it, I think it allows us to be, um, to bring so much more to the marriage as individuals yes. than we had before. Yes. Um, and then I guess the last thing is, you know, understanding about forgiveness and, you know, people used to always say to me, you know, you'll, you'll need to forgive him for yourself, you know, you, because you don't want to carry that resentment and anger and all of those bad feelings forever. It's really about you. Forgiveness isn't about him. It's about you. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't buy any of that. <laughs> I really didn't. I, I thought that was just, you know, that was just like Alan on speak. Um, but I have, I have definitely learned that forgiveness is for me. It definitely allows me to be a lighter person in general. Letting go of resentment um, is very, very liberating. And, and I think for me to be able to get to that place, I had to believe in redemption. I had to believe that Mark was able to turn his life around in a way that allowed me to find that love and respect for him that I had when we got married. And, um, and it's, it's, it's happened. I mean, and I think it's because of that belief in the redemption and that feeling of, I can let go of all the things that happened in the past because there's so many good things happening today, which goes back to like being in the present living one day at a time and recognizing what's good about today. Yeah. And those things have really gotten me through some tough times and continue to carry me through as things have gotten much, much better. What, um, what other resources for you are really helpful for those listening that are, that are new to this, that are not sure what to do. I mean, 
you've talked a lot about meetings. Um, you've talked about meditation and kind of your self-reflection, but any other resources that stand out as something you would recommend or kind of guide someone on if they're asking for advice? Yeah, I think a lot of the, the books that come out of Al-Anon are really helpful. Um, there's a daily reader that, there's a couple of daily readers that have um, different passages that you can read on any given day, on any given topic. Um, and sometimes if I'm just feeling anxious, I'll find a page that is relevant to what I'm feeling and I'll read that page and I'll meditate on it and it, it just helps me through it. So I do think a lot of the Al-Anon literature is really helpful and that can be found on the Al-Anon website. Yeah. Um, I also recommend that anybody who is new to addiction read the big book that the that all of the you know alcoholics and addicts um, read yeah. for their own recovery, and it really helps me to understand what happens on the other side of this program. Um, somebody recommended that to me when Mark was in treatment. They said the first thing you're going to want to do is read the big book because that's what he's reading right now, and you'll you'll have some insight into what he's learning and what he's understanding. And I found that to be extremely helpful. It, it was another way to educate myself on addiction and understanding how it manifests itself in different people in different ways. Yeah. Um, so I would certainly recommend that um, as reading material. Great. And just as far as I definitely want to be conscious of time here, um, what, what parting words for those listening? You're somebody that has a different perspective than what we've had so far. Um, and you've certainly gone through a lot, uh, and have a lot of, a lot of knowledge to provide. So what, what kind of words of advice, guidance, anything else, uh, for someone that's listening, would you, would you want to part with? Um, I would say first and foremost, don't be afraid to ask for help. You said it earlier and we said it a couple of times through this uh, through this conversation, don't be afraid to ask for help. People are there for you. People want to help and, and help is available. You're not alone and you do not have to deal with this alone. There are lots and lots and lots of people who have been uh, on this path and have come out, you know, to find the light on the other side. So I would say first and foremost, um, you know, be brave, take that step. You will not regret that. Um, and then the other the other part is be gentle on yourself and to be kind to yourself. I think that there's a lot of um, self-flagellation that happens when a loved one um, becomes addicted and we start to blame ourselves and look at all the things that we could have done differently and wished we had said and wished we had done. And truthfully, it's just, it's not worth going down that path. The, yeah. the path forward starts here and there's only one step forward. And, um, you know, I remember when, when Mark went to treatment, I, I, gave him a card that said, um, the journey of a thousand steps starts, a thousand miles starts with one step. Yeah. And I, I still believe that that's true. And so that's true for all of us. Take that first step and one foot in front of the other, you will get there. Yes. Thank you for that. And I completely agree. And really at the end of the day, we're all just on our own journeys, right? And um, trying to understand ourselves and trying to really channel in um, and just the, the sharing of stories and the open ear um, for understanding to me is the most important thing. Um, I agree. That's what I'm learning through all this, at least. So, um, well, listen, Vivian, thank you so much for joining. You're, you have a ton of courage, grace, everything great. Um, and it was so great chatting with you finally. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm sure that we will be tapping into your expertise and understanding um, as we move forward. But 
Really appreciate you joining. And until next time. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, thank you for joining us. It's, it's a great program. <laughs>